Hello, everybody. The Hockey News Podcast is back in its Zoom form with the regular crew today. It's Matt Larkin here. We've got Ken Campbell and Ryan Kennedy. And guys, uh, you know, I, I still feel the need to check in. I know this podcast is not, we're not the types to do a whole lot of small talk banter, but during these times when we don't get to see each other, I still, I like to check in. So tell me quickly, how are you hanging in? I'm doing okay. Um, I, I want to actually, given your attire today, I want to I want to change today's podcast to Fireside Chats with Matt Larkin. There we go. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I think like everybody else, uh, you know, it's getting a bit old and it's, uh, it's, it's a challenge. But, uh, um, you know, you got to be grateful that uh, you're healthy, I think. And, uh, and uh, you know, I've been able to spend some time with my family. So that's been, that's been all right. So, and like right now, I was, I was thinking about this, like pretty soon, probably within a week or so. You know, we would have been we would have been off to the Stanley Cup final, which is a bit depressing. But uh, but you know, it's hanging in as well as can be expected. I would say. I've never eaten better in my life because <laughs> I I don't go to uh, fast food restaurants for lunch almost every day as I did when I was at the office. Like I haven't had anything deep fried in like two months, wow. maybe longer. Yeah. No, no Uber Eats. You're not ordering stuff. No, I mean, we, we can cook, so it just kind of makes sense to keep doing that. And we're not a big takeout family to begin with. I, I eat all my bad stuff when I'm away from the house. So when I'm not away from the house, I eat much better. That's fair. Yeah. That's In like that regard. You know. <laughs> like on road trips. On road trips, I just eat like a 700-pound man. <laughs> well, it's like... Yeah, I, I, can, I can attest to that, too. Yeah, yeah like when I did, I, I did my blog... Uh, the other day about my my top 15 road spots and they're all like barbecue and like soul food and and things like that like there's not a vegan restaurant to be seen (laughs) that's fair it's funny actually i've lost weight i've lost weight during this but it's not like good weight i don't think i've lost muscle because yeah all you can do are stupid at-home workouts you're just watching some guy if i do one more goddamn push-up i'm gonna just done, done push-ups and toe touches and dips and all the the just body weight stuff. It's all you, all you got. I'm so sick of it. I was thinking, children. I was thinking about this the other day. I had five bucks in my pocket when the when everything shut down, and I don't think I've handled actual cash since then. Like in two months, I don't think I've had yeah. money in my hand. <laughs> Well, I wonder if this is going to be the death of money. It's it's kind of proving that we don't really, well, the only people that I think are really dependent on cash are still like the homeless, right? If right. There's no cash yeah. for them. I don't know what yeah. they'll do. But other than that, I think it's just highlighting the need for just using good old tap from a distance. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's launch into a little bit of hockey talk. Uh, we know that the return to play committee is being hard at work. Uh, planning out the PA, they have the players, NHLPA, the league, they're working at it, various scenarios. And we know, despite, you know, seeing things like the AHL canceled season this week does not affect the NHL, as we've been told. Um, they're still full steam ahead, returning to play, uh, or trying to trying to build that scenario. And this week, what we've learned is that they're gaining momentum, steering back toward the idea of the 2014 playoff tournament, or various scenarios that don't involve 
finishing out the regular season. That's a change from what we were hearing a couple weeks ago. So before we get deeper, just tell me what you think of that idea. Are you pro jump right to the playoffs? And are you pro 2014 tournament? We'll start with you, Ryan. I am pro going right to the playoffs. I think you got to get this thing going as soon as possible, but at the same time, you can't rush it. So I feel that just going right to the postseason makes the most sense. I feel 24 is too many. I think 20 would be optimal. That way you're covering off the bubble teams that, you know, when the schedule stopped, whether it's because of points percentage or because of, I I think they'll probably go with points percentage. Um, But this sort of covers off those teams that were pretty close that could make an argument that said like, well, we had more points than them, even though we played one more game and whatnot. But I think if you get to 24, then you're including teams that, didn't really have a shot and we're not in a a good position with 20 teams. Maybe what you do, I, you know, I'm not sure how they're, you know, if they do the hubs, how they're going to split them up. But you know, if you did four hubs with five teams, then you could hypothetically do double headers and have one team with that, that rest day. And maybe that makes the schedule easier to do. So I, I, I'm, I'm more comfortable with 20, but I know, you know, James Van Riemsdyk, who was on the committee, said, you know, no one's going to be happy with, you know, we can't please everybody. And, and that's understandable. But I, I think 20 is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of getting things going, too. I think, uh, you know, I mean, 85% of the regular season had already been played. So it's not like, um, you know, we have a real incomplete picture here. We knew – who the really good teams were. We knew who the bubble teams were. We knew who the okay teams were. I mean, you had a big enough body of work that you could go into the playoffs. And, and I, I, like guys, I don't know about you guys, but I don't, I don't buy this whole, you know, gee, these guys are going to not have skated for two and a half months. And Oh, woe is them. Like they're going to be fine. They're, they're world-class athletes. You know, the, 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 the vast majority of them are, are, are working out at home they'll be fine to come back. I mean, I, I, I don't think that's going to be an issue at all. I mean, they're going to have a, probably a three-week training camp to get the rust off their skates and, and stuff, and I, I think that they'll be just fine. So uh, what I see and, and what I'm hearing is like two 12-team hubs, like or two, two cities hosting 12 teams each, um, which I think would be pretty interesting. I, I'm with you, Ryan. I think 12 is, is you know, I think you're – it doesn't affect the integrity or anything because it, this is a, such a novel situation that you have to, you have to make allowances for stuff like that. But I, I'm with you. I think, you know, I think 24 is, there's too many. I mean, there's, there's out of that, you're right. There's four teams that really had no real chance of making the playoffs. I mean, they had a mathematical chance, but no real chance. So uh, yeah, I'm with you. I would go 20 on each side or 10 on each side uh, and just, just get things going. If, you know, it, this is all predicated on, on whether or not, um, you know, they can actually pull it off logistically, which I have my, I really, really have my doubts that they can, but I mean, they've got to try, right. They've got to try. I applaud them for trying. I applaud them for being persistent and, and uh, you know, showing ingenuity and creativity with all of this. I still, I'm still not convinced it's going to, it's, it's going to be able to happen. It's funny. I, what I'm not convinced of is that it's going to be good hockey right away. So I'm actually not with you, Ken. And my exhibit A is William Nealander last year, <laughs> not playing game action. He was still working out. He was in game shape, but he wasn't 
playing in real games and he was sluggish. So I expect that hockey people are people are saying it's going to be amazing hockey. Everyone's rested. I think it's going to be sluggish, cement-footed hockey for at least the beginning. Um, but that's all the more reason why I actually think it's it's smart uh, to go right to the playoffs because you're going to need to be working out those kinks. But you don't want to be working out those kinks for a full month over a regular season and then a training camp. You're doing all that and then the playoffs wouldn't be for six weeks or something like that. So I think we just have to accept that it's going to be Maybe, you know, the playing games might be not the best hockey in the world, um, but it's it'll still be so fascinating, interesting. And it was Chris Johnson from Sportsnet. He kind of, uh, I think a couple months ago, was, was writing out what the, what the matchups would be if it was a 24-team tournament. Uh, you'd get the top eight teams would get their buys to so the normal playoff bracket, but you'd get Pittsburgh, Montreal, Toronto Rangers, uh, Carolina, Florida, Islanders, Columbus, Dallas, Chicago, Vancouver, Arizona, Nashville, Minnesota, uh, and Calgary, Winnipeg. Calgary, Winnipeg alone might be <laughs> worth the price of admission there. I'm I'm pro 2014 tournament. I said this on our podcast yesterday as well, just because you know people don't like the idea of Montreal, Chicago conspiracy theory getting in there because of the TV ratings. But I just think it's fun. Who cares? It's unprecedented. And if you if you're not a fan of Montreal or Chicago being in there, as I said yesterday, then just go ahead and beat them. If you're going to complain about it, then go yeah. beat them, teams. Yeah, yeah. If you hate them being in there. If they're so bad then you should have no problem beating them. And if you can't, then I guess they deserve to be in the playoffs and you don't. Exactly. Uh, what I'm wondering about too is, and I agree, Ken, logistically, it's tough to see, they're tough to say if we're going to be able to pull it off. Um, it's something that I've, I've been writing about for our next magazine. And, you know, uh, a lot of teams have, they're going through scenarios of how to present the game. Um, and there are a lot of ideas out there. I talked to an executive from Sportsnet and some NHL team executives as well. And I think there's a lot of potential for it to look really good. There are going to be places you can put cameras that you never could normally uh, because you can move a camera all over the rink now. You don't have to worry about getting in fans' ways or, or, or fan getting in the way of the camera. And I think that teams themselves, uh, at least talking to the Sharks president, uh, Jonathan Becker, they're, they've sort of played out lots of scenarios of how to present the game and make it still exciting and play music and have the players still come out of the tunnel, all that stuff to make the players feel like it's sort of like a, a real game. So I, I'm not worried about that stuff, but I think what we do – have to wonder about is what Mitch Marner was saying yesterday on his Twitch stream, saying what happens if a player dies. Uh, and it kind of reminds you of the NBA scenario in which, you know, one player can affect so many. So I think there is a risk that one NHL player gets affected and infected and you have to shut it all down. So that's kind of my next question for you guys. Uh, it's just, are we getting too far ahead of ourselves? When you're seeing countries like South Korea and Lebanon are going backward and they're, they're going back into lockdown, should we not even be considering these return to play scenarios yet? Well, I've been talking to a fellow by the name of Dr. Isaac Bulgach, who's one of Canada's leading infectious disease specialists. And he told me right from the hop, he said that he thinks that this has legs, that, that, that the NHL's, you know, sort of return to play scenarios, it has legs. He says, but, but, but the one thing that he did say is, is they're going to have to be prepared at any one time to basically either pause again or have to shut it down. Um, because you just don't know, right? Like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to give the NHL and the NHL Players Association the benefit of the doubt. I'm told they're talking to the right people. I'm told they're asking the right questions. And I'm going to give the NHL the benefit of the doubt that it's going to have its players' best interests at heart. Um, that may be naive of me, <laughs> because we've seen with, with head trauma that they don't always have their be the players' best interests at heart. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give them that. I'm going to give them that they're, 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 they know that these, 
players are also very expensive, important assets as well, and they're human beings, and they need to be taken care of. So I think as long as you have all levels of government on board, as long as you have public health authorities on board, as long as you have the players on board, and then, you know, the, the constituents that, like, say you're coming to Toronto, the, you know, the people of Toronto are on board, then I think you can move ahead and give it a, give it a go. Because, but, but, but all of those dominoes have to be in place. And, and that's why I'm, I'm kind of dubious about whether or not they're going to be able to pull it off. I think the fact that the NHL will not be the first major sports league to come back will help them. You know, we've already seen the return of, Korean baseball, the German Bundesliga soccer coming back as well. So there will be some templates for them, albeit different sports, but obviously players are going to get tested as soon as they come into whatever sort of bubble zone they create. And there's going to be as many, you know, health barriers uh, put up to make sure that, um, everyone can sort of function in this environment and, and remain safe as much as you can when you're playing a contact sport. But I think, you know, if they get everybody in one spot and have them isolated so that they can play these games, as long as they've been tested, I, I, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I would, I would assume that would be enough to ensure that everything's okay, at least for that predetermined amount of time. So I think that's the, the one benefit they'll have is they can look at some of the other sports and leagues that have already begun again and say, okay, well, what were their best practices? Why did it work? Have they had any flare-ups or any incidents? Um, and then they can build off of that. Fair. Uh, also coming out in the news this week, uh, a lot of the prospects uh, that are getting ready for the 2020 NHL draft are expressing some impatience and there's a sense that they kind of want to get it over with. Um, personally, you know, all due respect to these prospects, I don't really sympathize with them. It's like, I'm sorry you're impatient, but like, you know, so are all the people at home with their little kids or, you know, insert any scenario of any citizen here. Everyone's impatient. Everyone wants to get back to regular life. I personally don't think it's worth having that June draft. Um, and it sounds like, you know, the, the, the board of governors and, and the GMs in particular are starting to convince the league as well. They're backing off that. Um, so it's, to me, it's kind of, well, too bad draftees like you're gonna have to wait because the cons outweigh the pros uh resuming or drafting before the resumption of the season you know we talked about it already all the conditional picks it's a mess uh so i don't feel much sympathy for them in this context where do you guys land on that i I do feel sympathy for them um the same way i feel sympathy for you know i mean my, my buddy's daughter i was talking to him last night she's in grade 12 in high school she won't have a prom she plays basketball. She, her basketball career just ended, you know. I, I feel sympathy for her. The same way I feel sympathy for these guys that they won't, they're clearly not going to be able to go through the whole draft experience the way it, it usually is. And, and they're going to have to wait a little bit longer. But again, when I was talking to my buddy, we were talking about it. We were saying, yeah, let's put this in perspective. These are first world problems. Okay, like big time first world problems. And yes, I do sympathize with them. But I'm with you, Matt. I don't I, I don't sympathize with them enough to think that it's a good idea to completely upset the apple cart here and, and do something that I think is, that I thought from the beginning was rash and, and, and really not worth 
you know, the bump, the little bump you were going to get. Like, you know, I mean, I know that they were talking about, you know, okay, the NFL had their draft and all kinds of people watched and everything. But, you know, I mean, I come back, like, this is a league that can't even leverage its participation in the Olympics, you know? So, like, are they, are they really, is it really going to be a sustained bump if some people watch, you know, if a few more people watch the draft because it's in June and nothing else is on? I'm not convinced and I don't think it's worth it, so... I think if they had already done it, they might have got a nice little bump. But at this point, we're already talking about when is the NHL going to return. And I think there's a lot of talk and momentum there. So I, for the prospects, yeah, I feel sympathy. But, I mean, they're going to get drafted. It will happen. It's just going to happen later. It, was, it wasn't going to happen in person. I mean, once this whole thing began – it was never going to happen in person. So whether it's online now or online in September or whenever it happens to be, you're still going to get picked. I think, you know, I mean, they can still make it fun. Maybe they send like 31 hats to, you know, the all the potential first rounders and they film it. And then when they get picked, they can put the hat on, they can wear a suit uh, and it'll still be kind of fun in that regard. But it, it, you know, it's, it's pretty rare when a player goes straight from the draft to the NHL. We're talking about two or three kids every season. Everybody else goes back to junior or college or Europe. So in terms of their actual playing careers, it, it doesn't really matter whether it happens soon or in the fall. Um, we're basically talking about Alexi Lafreniere and maybe one or two other guys that can jump straight in. So for them to have to wait a bit more, I mean, they can train with their junior teams. I'm not sure if maybe there'll be some exceptions made where, you know, for this year, even if you go back to your junior team, you can go to the NHL once the NHL starts up the 2020-21 season. And you, you make a little bit of an asterisk there for guys that are in their spot. Um, otherwise, you know, I mean, you talk to any established hockey person and they'll say it doesn't matter when you were drafted it's what you do after the draft so the draft itself it's a lot of fun pop and circumstance it's always a great event it's not going to happen this year that's okay uh we will move on and, and all these players are are going to have the same careers they would have otherwise better to get it all sorted out get those conditional picks sorted and we move on when we can. Yeah, I agree. And especially because if you're these players that are feeling robbed of the experience, if anything, if you're waiting longer, if you're not getting dra drafted till November, the odds of being able to do it in person actually go up. So you're more likely to get that yeah. real authentic experience. And even if you don't, you know, it's really, it's a first rounder thing in terms of a, like you said, right. You know, being directly impacted in their very near future, but also even being there. We, we still remember the old coach's corner cliche, Don Cherry. I tell you right now, don't go to the draft, kids. I hate to see these kids crying here when they, you know, the kids don't get picked. So it's not like we're going to get a ton of people going anyways. Um, so I, I think there are bigger problems for sure. Um, some news in women's hockey this week, the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association, the Dream Gap group, the, 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 for the game, the, you know, the, the large contingent of the best women's players in the world, with all due respect to the ones that are playing in the NWHL, the majority of the best ones 
are part of that union and they're the ones that represented you know all 20 of them at the three on three event so we know that they're all they're all part of the the, the ph the p the pwhpa a lot of letters they put together the uh and they announced because obviously they had the dream gap tour this year this week they announced their plan for the 2021 season of course assuming that these games can be staged for COVID reasons, uh, but they're looking at a five hub city plan. So the, the games are going to be much more localized. Um, and I think whenever this group does anything now, the question everyone wants to know is, okay, what's the, what's the big picture? How is it going to get us closer to what their goal is, which is a unified league with proper conditions for playing? Um, so I'm, that's kind of my question. Do you think that this plan, I see certain benefits of the plan, uh, absolutely, especially just for training uh, the conditions and just to be able to get more routine. I, I think we're going to see a, an increase in the quality of hockey. To me, that's the immediate effect. So I'm wondering, you know, if this is going to be used as a way to advertise the game, because we know that they're looking for a major sponsor, someone to take, take the bull by the horns, whether it's the NHL, whether it's someone else, to create that unified league. So what I see is, advertising an improved game, higher quality of play, but I don't see much else in terms of what the long-term effect is going to be. Are you guys optimistic that this is going to get us closer to the unified league? Well, I mean, they're facing the same, they're facing the same issues that everybody else is in the hockey world right now. Right. I mean, so I think that's sort of driving a lot of this as well. Um, you know, that they, there's so much uncertainty around everybody's season. Like are any, is anybody going to be playing, before January. Is anybody going to be playing next year at all? I mean, I think, I don't think we know the answers to those questions. Um, <clears throat> I, um, I gotta, I gotta tell you guys, I've, I've been, I, I haven't quite understood what the end game has been since the beginning for the PWHPA. Um, aside from the fact that, you know, I mean, it looks as though they've, they are intentionally trying to sabotage the NWHL to hasten its demise and have no leagues so that the NHL steps in. Uh, so I, I guess that's what they want to do. And, and they're either going to be able to do it or they can't, but I've, I, I have never quite been on board with the notion that you raise awareness and you um, raise the profile of the sport by effectively not playing. I, I've never been on board with that. Um, you know, like I said, I, like I said, when, this came up, you know, start your own league, start a league. I mean, that's what the women's tennis tour did in the 1970s with the Virginia Slims tour. You know, they didn't like, they didn't like the prize money they were getting. They thought they were, they, they, and, and they were rightly so. They thought they were being exploited and not being given their share of, of the prize money and, and being treated as a second class citizen. So what did they do? They went out and they formed their own tour. And now we see women's tennis where it is. So um, to me, I've, I've never quite been on board with, this whole scheme, I guess. I think you're, you're right about the, uh, the assessment. I mean, for a lot of people, the NWHL is a hindrance to the game. And I think the, the top women's players are seeing that and they know that it has to be started anew. And I think obviously a partnership with the NHL would be the ideal. What I, what I like about, the new regional hub system is that the emphasis, as Matt mentioned, is on training and conditioning. And, you know, one of the arguments we always hear against women's hockey is, oh, they're not as good as the men. It's like, well, yeah, because most of them have part-time jobs 
And, you know, they don't even have their own dressing rooms in these arenas. With the regional hub system, that's one of the aims is that all the teams would have their own dedicated dressing rooms. They would have support staff in terms of trainers and coaches. And I think, you know, when we've seen the top women on big stages, like at the All-Star Game, uh, particularly in St. Louis when they actually, you know, played during the uh, skills competition and it was a, a pretty riveting game you know, there is, there is a high to reach there and there are elite athletes that are really fun to watch. Now, if you can continue to bring that mark up, it becomes all the more marketable. And I mean, I, I feel that there's a lot of people out there that want it to succeed. So it's just a matter of giving these athletes the resources they need to be the best and not have to worry about all these other things related to the sport that NHLers haven't had to worry about, you know, in decades, even longer, perhaps. So I, I like, I like it as a step. I think this is a long road because they're, you know, we're talking about them playing catch up to the tune of 60, 70 years on the NHL and information goes so much faster these days that we all expect everything to be, top-notch right away, but I don't think that's realistic. I think they're building it and it's going to be tough and there's always, you know, there's going to be detractors, but I think this is a nice step and there's a long road to go, but I think this is a positive. Mm -hmm. uh, over in the AHL this week, so we've touched on, on it already, but the AHL obviously announced the cancellation of the season and the playoffs. Um, but the big question is, uh, and I know, Ken, you raised this uh, earlier this week, what's going to be the effect on next year's season? Because it, it's clear, and something we all know, the AHL is as gate revenue dependent as you'll find in a league. This is not a TV league. Uh, so with so many revenues being lost and the possibility, you know, we don't know exactly what things are going to look like even next season in terms of how many people are going to be able to go to games. Uh, there's been talk and even the pre president Dave Andrews, who sadly is going to be ending on this note and not getting to see one more Calder cup. Uh, he was implying that there might not be 31 AHL teams next year. Uh, so I'm curious what you guys think. Uh, it, what, what, what's the end game here? And is it, is there going to be a disaster for the AHL? And I, I even see some ripple effects for the NHL. I'll get to those later, but first let's talk AHL and Ken, you can go first. Cause I know you had some thoughts already this week. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, I think this goes a lot deeper than just the AHL, the East Coast League, the, you know, major juniors, is the Canadian Hockey League going to be playing next year? When are they going to be playing? And if nobody beneath the NHL is playing because the NHL is the only league that can afford to play in front of no fans, what are you going to do with all, like with this critical mass of prospects who need to be developed? I mean, that to me is, is a real vexing question for the hockey world and one that has no easy answers. Um, you know, I mean, the AHL, what is it? Nine, there's 31 teams now, right? In the AHL? As of this year, I believe that there's a team for every NHL. Yeah. And, and I believe 18 or 19 of them are owned by NHL teams. Correct. So if there's going to be, you know, a solution here, I think it's going to be in, you know, maybe the NHL pools all its revenues together and props up these 19 teams to play. And, you, you, you know, each team that doesn't have a, a, a team left, you know, is able to put prospects, you know, among those teams or something. I, I don't know. And those teams – 
you know, play in, in hubs or, or in front of no fans and they're funded, it's all funded by the NHL. Uh, I'm not sure that that's even doable because, I mean, the NHL is losing a bucket loads of money here too as well, which is, you know, I mean, we talk about things like compliance buyouts and that's all well and good, but I'm not sure that an owner who's just lost, you know, $25 million is going to be interested in, you know, buying out the contract of some guy that, you know, is, is overpaid and, and under delivering. So um, yeah, there's, this is, this is causing a lot of havoc and uh, I'm not sure that there are any clear answers at the moment. Mm. I think you have to look at the long-term picture. If you're an NHL owner and yes, they're losing money right now, but I mean, franchise values always go up. You know, eventually if you want money, you sell your team and you will get, you know, factors of two, three, four times your original investment, if not more, even with the losses you might be taking in, you know, this year and even next year. So, I, I mean, for me, for the, for the greater good, they need to prop up the AHL. And it, it's interesting. I was just reading a story this morning from Jeremy Rutherford, uh, the excellent St. Louis Blues correspondent with The Athletic. He did a mailbag and somebody was asking about uh, Springfield, which is going to be St. Louis's new AHL affiliate because a lot of teams have there, – there's always movement there. Um, he was saying that, you know, the owner in Springfield – has pretty deep pockets. He's a, he's a casino guy. Um, so, you know, hopefully for Springfield, that's one of those teams where even though they're not NHL owned, uh, hopefully they can sort of weather the storm and continue to play. I wonder if the solution is that the AHL goes to all the independent owners and says, do you think you can play this year? If you don't, that's okay. You can be on hiatus. And we'll find places for, you know, the players, as you know, as you were saying, Ken, maybe you disperse them into other teams. Um, obviously, there's going to be some leftover guys, and, and that's unfortunate. Um, maybe they find jobs elsewhere. Uh, maybe, unfortunately, some players just have to take an extended break. These are unprecedented times. But I think, you know, because you're, you probably can't have any fans in the stands, um, unless you can find season ticket holders that would be willing to pay a fraction to have some sort of special TV feed for the games. I, I mean, people are going to have to be innovative here. You know, the, the folks that run the game, not only the NHL level, but the HL and as you mentioned before, major junior as well, which is very community based in a lot of cases, uh, they're going to have to get creative until, you know, a, a vaccine comes and, and some semblance of normalcy returns to the world. For sure, and I do wonder, you know, if there are any enforcers left at the AHL level or ECHL, the trickle effect could be, you know, if there are fewer teams and you're trying to find homes for players, those guys could get squeezed out once and for all. The other thing I'm wondering about is European leagues for, for two reasons. One, for prospects, any prospects that are hoping to come over and get accustomed to the North American game before they can make the jump to the NHL, they're not going to, or their odds of getting that opportunity go way down next year, of course. That could slow their, their development. On the flip side, I do think that the Euro leagues would be well equipped to accommodate the, the overflow of players if there, if there are fewer teams, because the Euro leagues, I think, are more likely to be functional. Um, just in terms of their COVID timeline, they started sooner. So theoretically, they should be getting back to hockey sooner. More importantly, you know, if you look at the Swedish league, the Finnish league, the KHL, those leagues do get TV revenues. Those leagues do get a lot of TV viewership. 
uh, because in their own countries, they're a really big deal. They're a big part of the culture. So I think that those teams are all much more likely to be still thriving and able to, to make money because of the broadcasts. Uh, and I think that means maybe that those teams could be available for some loans. It'd be obviously very complicated. It would produce a lot of controversy back home if you have these imports coming over, pushing some guys out. But who knows? I think, I think honestly, anything's possible. That's just one scenario that popped up in my head. Uh, let's do some, some listener or viewer questions now. Uh, first one is from Luke Diamond. And Luke asks, are non-NHL cities an option for hosting games if the NHL resumes. Moncton, New Brunswick was reportedly mentioned as a host site idea a few weeks ago. Um, I still think that's unlikely because if you look at the hub cities being considered by the NHL, I think it's not a coincidence that, you know, a lot of the markets being talked about are bigger markets because they're markets that have NBA teams, because if you have a big arena, so Toronto, for example, is one that's being talked up a lot, uh, an arena that has facility for a basketball team and a hockey team. That means they have four, really good quality dressing rooms. And if you're staggering games in a hub environment, having multiple games a day, you can have that cascading rotation where you have two dressing rooms being used, two dressing rooms being sanitized and so on and so on and so on. Uh, so I, I think for that reason, you're less likely to see a venue like Moncton get used. I, I see Luke's point and I think it's a good one for this reason. And, and that it's that New Brunswick's basically closed their border, right? And if you look, I think the other day, New Brunswick was reporting like zero or one new case a day of COVID. So if you want to put them in a safe environment, that's the kind of place to put them. Uh, but I mean, Gary Bettman has already said they're, ve they're very much leaning against neutral sites. They're, they're going, you know, they're, they're focusing on NHL cities. So I think that's going to happen. But, but I mean, like, let's say you do the two hubs, 12 teams each. Well, where are you going to put all those people? Where are you going to put all those players? What you know, the, the Moncton probably doesn't have enough hotels to to accommodate that. They don't have the infrastructure to accommodate that. So I think that's a big part of it as well. But from a health standpoint, you know, I, I think going to a place like Moncton would be a, a great idea because, like I said, they're they've they haven't only flattened the curve; they've basically eradicated it to to a certain degree. And and if you want to keep people safe, that's the kind of place you want to be. Yeah, I agree. I think they're pretty much set on NHL locations at this point. It, you know, it was worth having the thought exercise. And, you know, I, I know North Dakota was mentioned early on, maybe even uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. But I think at this point, they're looking at a scenario which is more likely having sort of a bubble area. And I know, you know, Columbus was one they talked about where they could sort of shut down that whole arena district where, where nothing's going on right now because – it's all sort of predicated on Blue Jackets games. But if you have enough hotels for those guys and you have enough, you know, uh, restaurants that could be open specifically for the folks in that hockey bubble, then you have the facilities, you have the infrastructure needed to carry out this very interesting mission that, that has never been attempted before. So, and also, they know these buildings more intimately than they know the neutral site locations. They, they know what they have and, uh, and, and what would be needed for essentially tournaments that you're going to have a lot of turnover of people and a lot of movement. As, and as Matt said, uh, the, the dressing rooms as well. For sure. And, and if you look at some of the bigger venues and, you know, I, I keep going back to this, but it, it was really fascinating. And uh, 
having talked to the Blue Jackets and Sharks, I, I spoke to them extensively over the past couple of weeks because those are the two teams that had already announced the plans to play without fans. So I think they were just ahead of the curve in terms of having ideas. And the Sharks specifically already had a 20-page document of scenarios of how they would put on the games. And as they told me last week, the, the hard part, and this is why a smaller, a smaller city uh, like Moncton might not work, is it's crazy how quickly the number of players just – or the number of people required just for a skeleton crew game – how quickly yeah. the number goes up, okay? So the scenario that the Sharks were explaining to me, uh, you start, you know, you, just your two teams, your two teams and coaching staff, that's 50 people easily right there. Then you've got your training staff, your team doctors, your ice crew. Uh, you have, if you're allowed hockey ops, the officiating crew, uh, the, the arena security, even if you're just doing external security, the people that are providing food, at least to the players, if you're playing that hub, you still have to be able to provide food to players and possibly staff as well. And of course, if it's the NHL, they're not doing this without a broadcast. So you got your broadcast crew, you got your radio broadcast crew. If you're doing local, are you going to have local and national broadcast? So the number goes up so fast uh, that they were saying to me, it's very easy to get to 300 people just to put on a bare bones minimum game. Yeah. Uh, so if you're in a smaller city, can they accommodate? And that's just for two teams, right? 300 people, then you keep adding for every other team. If you're, if you're functioning as a hub, if it's a hub for, you know, several teams, it could be in the thousands easily, right? Required to put on a game. So it's going to be tough to pull that off. That's why I think we're more likely to see a major city do it. Uh, next question is from Jake Lahoot. Lahoot is a, he's a, he's a good guy. He's a longtime hockey news supporter. Always has good questions for us. So shout out to Jake. Uh, Jake says, what do you think of the NHL's ability to market its players online during the pandemic? Compared to the NFL, NBA, MLB, and soccer leagues, hockey players seem to treat lots of social media appearances like a chore, save for P.K. Subban. What will it take to make them less boring? Well, it's funny. I do have a lot of thoughts on this because it's something I wrote about for our superstar issue. Um, I kind of got the idea. It was Vander Kane that told me this, and sometimes I repeat stories, so I apologize if I've told the story on the podcast before, but he was he was talking about the time he got in trouble for, you know, during the lockout, he had the stack of money using it as a phone. And he said to me, Hey, what, what about, remember when Wes Welker in the NFL was throwing money at the Kentucky Derby? People thought it was the coolest thing. And that's the difference between hockey culture and, and football culture, possibly a race thing there too. But I think in this case, he was referring to it more about just the celebration of personality uh, in other sports compared to hockey. Uh, so I, I always wondered the same thing because there's a conformist culture in hockey and players are not wanting to stand out. We even saw Colin Wilson this week, talking about the rainbow tape on his stick and he's afraid to wear it, to use it for a whole game because he's going to get made fun of, which is pretty sad. Uh, but it's, but it's, he's speaking the truth. That is the state of affairs in, in hockey. It's more of a conformist culture. That said, um, I did speak to Brian Jennings recently, who is the NHL's executive VP of marketing and their chief branding officer. And he made a really good point to me. And the point was that yes, this current generation of Oshuk's players has a certain aversion to showing their personality, but he singled out Jack Hughes as an example of the next generation. These are all players that are born into ubiquitousness of the internet. And they're born into always being online, showing their personality, even just things like we, you know, we said the Mitch Marner Twitch stream. So this next generation of players are growing up much more media savvy, media trained, comfortable showing their whole life, being more individualistic online. So I think we're going to see gradually the grandfathering out of, of the, of the Oshucks, you know, Shea Weber type of player. And we're going to see a lot more PK Subban. So if you look 20 years from now, I think the NHL is going to have a lot more personality because you're just going to have this younger generation of kids that are a lot more comfortable showing who they are. 
So there's my, uh, my two cents. Well, with respect, my good friend, Maddie, um, <clears throat> I'm going to disagree with you on that um, because of what you said about the culture of the game. I think the culture of the game will co-opt these guys. And, and, it, and it happens all the time. And, and the one, the, 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 um, the, the example I keep going back to is Dion Phaneuf. Um, Dion Phaneuf at the 2004 World Juniors was a quote machine. He was out there. He was, he, he, I remember he, uh, he hit a guy in open ice. I think it was Rostislav a little or something. Anyways, he huge hit middle of the ice probably would be a suspension now, but you know, he was, he was, uh, he was not, he, they were having a hearing and everything. And I went up to him and I said, okay, so they decided you're not suspended. And he goes, Oh yeah, what a great decision. You know, like he was just so <laughs> full of life, so exuberant, so, um, you know, so ready to be out there. And then he got to the NHL and he started playing for Sutter and he got Sutterized. And then it was marbles in the mouth. And I, I just think that I, I, I think that it's, I think the power of the culture of the game that you talked about is far more powerful than the, the individual personalities that are trying to show it. And, and I think we still see it. Like, I mean, you know, Mitch Marner will say something occasionally, but then, you know, once he sees how big it gets, like a lot of these guys end up retreating. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not as confident as you are that we're going to see, you know, a, a groundswell of young kids who are going to be brash and, and have swagger and, and sell the league. I, I think they do get co-opted very, very quickly by a lot of people and and i've said this and i've 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 beaten this drum for a long time there are more former players in positions of power in the nhl than there are in any other sport and it's not even close and those are the people who are dictating how these guys careers are going to go so they're the ones who are going to tell them how to act Mm -hmm. um as far as but right now like through the covid crisis i I would disagree with the um with the with the listener i I think the nhl has been very very good and very very proactive in making people available they've made a lot of guys available and the guys that have become that have been available have not looked at it as a chore as as the 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 viewer was saying i think i think they've embraced it i was on a, a a a video call with andre kopitar uh ryan getzlaff uh, Drew, no, it wasn't Drew Doughty. Um, I don't know. And, and like a couple of other guys and it was amazing the back and forth and the chirping and all of that other stuff. And they were having a great time with it. So I, I think during this, this crisis, I think the NHL has actually done a very, very good job of keeping relevant, making its players available and sort of keeping, you know, to feed the beast here. I'm going to take sort of a middle road and, say that there's all I think the route to getting more interesting stuff from players is is almost a Trojan horse and I think esports right now is one path and I know JT Comfer and Zach Hyman are setting something up through the NHLPA that's a big esports tournament featuring a lot of their NHL peers and I have to think that when those guys are in a competitive environment, even if it's not on the ice, even when they're just playing video games, the personality has to come out. Like you can't tamp it down while you're doing something. Um, that's why, you know, when you catch hot mics in the NHL, that's like the most fun. I mean, it's also the reason we, we all love referee Wes McCauley because it's when he's on the mic, 
in his element that you get the really fun stuff. And I think that's an avenue where players will be able to show their personality. And I mean, they could always walk it back later and be like, oh, I was caught up in the moment. But at least we've already had the joy of seeing them act like human beings with fully formed personalities and not just the, the sort of quote machines that you get in between periods. Um, I would also say, I think that another sort of Trojan horse is, you know, you look at the Spit and Chicklets podcast that Paul Bissonnette and Ryan Whitney do, they get amazing stuff from players that you would never think of. I mean, you know, they have their buddies that were sort of fringe NHLers that are, that tell really fun stories, but then you have Sidney Crosby coming across as just one of the guys having great stories. And it's, you know, he's not saying anything nefarious. It's just, you're seeing the fun side of Sidney Crosby that all of his fellow players know, but that we don't always get to see sometimes, you know, Connor McDavid is on the show and, and he showed personality, which we rarely see in a scrum setting. So I think, you know, when players are in an environment with their peers, guys like this and Ed and Ryan Whitney, who were in the NHL, you see it loosened up. And, and I hope that they, they extend that courtesy to us more often, uh, even if it is in a more formal setting, because it's, it's really fun to see uh, what these guys come up with. And you raise a really good point. It kind of makes me wonder if we're kind of we're stumbling on a new way to conduct interviews, um, which is with multiple players at once. Because normally it's one guy talking to a scrum at once. Um, but I, it's, it's funny. It's coming back to me now. I remember I went to Ottawa last year and I, for a story on the rookies, and I interviewed Colin White, Brady Kachuk, Thomas Shabbat, and Max Lajoie all, all at the same time. And it was really funny because they start chirping each other and riffing off each other, making fun of each other's answers. Uh, and I think what the Zoom format has done is, created that effect where there are a bunch of guys talking to each other. And I did this, <laughs> this ridiculous one. Um, I think you can find it. If you go to NHL.com, I believe they've posted these for fans to see. And there's one, it's an all Boston one. It's like Chris Wagner and <laughs> Chris Kreider and Kevin A's. And then halfway through Keith Yandel bombs the zoom and takes over and just starts, they're all chirping each other with their Boston accents. And like, it was so funny. It was totally useless. I was like, I can't, I can't write. I got no story to write about this, but I just sat there and watched it because they were all just all over each other. And uh, it was kind of neat to see. And I think it's the, the result of having multiple guys talking at once. So maybe that's a thing we journalists have to try and do more often, get guys to talk in a group and see if they open each other up because of their reports that they've already built. Uh, we'll do one more question and maybe we've already a answered this one. So think of it as sort of a summary, but Chris Talbot just wants to know straight up, bro. In your opinions, what do you think are the chances that the 2019-20 season resumes? I'm going to say 90%. Uh, it's very clear. And again, like I, I think I said this yesterday, but I, when the AHL cancellation happened, I emailed Bill Daly that morning saying, does this affect anything? And he was like, no way. This is the return to play. We're fully committed still to the return to play scenarios. And I think it's pretty clear just for TV purposes, the NHL, they're going to they have the drop-dead date that they announced before, or they explained uh, to me before when I asked. Cup's got to be handed out in the calendar year of 2020, and as long as that's still possible, they're going full steam ahead. So I think 90% easy. What do you guys think? I'm going to say 50-50. Ooh. Uh, yeah, yeah, at best. Because I, I just think that as much as there is a will, I'm not sure there's a way. Um, that, 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 you know, I mean, if, it's, if, it, if you're just going on, you know, does the NHL want to play and finish this season? Absolutely. Are they coming up with very, very creative and innovative ways to try and do that? No question. But 
then reality has a way of smacking you in the face. So that's why I'm tampering mine. And I'm, I'm going to go with 50-50. I'm going to go 80% that they come back. We're already seeing states like Arizona uh, say that they're, they're opening up soon. So, I mean, depending on what hub cities you want to choose and, and think would work, I mean, they might be kind of, might have to be kind of open there, but pragmatically, I think they want it to happen really badly. And I think there are enough U.S. states, at least, I don't know about Canadian provinces, but there are at least enough U.S. states where you could establish hubs and they would be very happy to have your business right now, that if you wanted to make it happen, you could make it happen. And I do really think that they want it to happen. Fair answers. And to, to, to qualify my answer, I'm not saying I think that the NHL should come back. I'm just saying I think that they will. <laughs> I think there is a difference there. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks, guys. This is a good podcast, and we will be back. I'm not, you know, might not be next week. We're kind of just, we're kind of just seeing where the wind takes us. When when there's news, we'll talk about it. Uh, but we'll be back soon, one way or another. Thank you for listening. Stay safe at home, everybody, and we will be talking to you soon. I hope.